Let me say at the outset, I'm very glad to be here. I'm glad to get to renew some friendships and, and maybe remember some names a little bit better next time and things of that nature. It's just always good. And I appreciate it. I know uh, it's been good for you to have had this summer series going, and I'm sure you've had some really great lessons. Uh, I can just count on that. I, I know and have heard of some of the, the speakers that you had on your dais, and so I, I'm sure everything has been really very good. I had an opportunity uh, the other night, David Barker called, because you see, he's the preacher, right? And he worries about, is he gonna show up or not? And so he just called to see if I was still on track, and I am, and, uh, but I can well equate that. And in fact, let me just tell you, about three years ago now, uh, we had a guest speaker at New Antioch, and it was time for him to be there, and usually 10 or 15 minutes before most will be there, you know, and when it gets down to one minute before, you get a little bit, you're looking, you're at the, at the door, looking out in the parking lot, and one of the elders came up there with me, and we're looking at each other, and five minutes past time, we're still looking at each other, and he says, I hope you got something. <laughs> and so uh, we didn't learn until later that the speaker had gotten our date confused with Aldridge Grove, and he went on to Aldridge Grove that night, and it took a while, but he convinced them he was supposed to speak there that night, and they let him. <laughs> and we've had a laugh about it ever since, you know. So uh, sometimes things like that just happen. That's part of life, you know. So I just was, uh, had a little grin when David called, and uh, they're doing well up there, you know, at polishing the pulpit. I've some other friends that are up there, and I heard from one or two of one of them, and he is from Louisiana, actually, and goes to polishing the pulpit, and he called to say they had about 4,000 up there, and that sounds like a pretty good crowd, you know, this day and time and under circumstances we've all been through for a while. Well, uh, let, let's begin in Luke chapter 14. That will serve as a text basis for my lesson tonight, and <clears throat> we're going to be considering the context here just generally, and then I'm going to get kind of focused in on one or two major points here that we'd like to talk about. This is an occasion where Jesus is in the house of one of the chief of the Pharisees. It's a Sabbath day. He's there to eat bread, and of course there are other people that are there as well. And so what happens is Jesus doesn't really uh, hear anything from them at first, but then he asks a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Well, you know, uh, that question comes up quite often from the Pharisees to Jesus, but this time he kind of beat it to them. And the reason why he did was because one of the men that was there to partake of the goods that day, to eat that day, had dropsy. And I don't know what your translation says. I looked it up about three times and found the same answer every time. So it has to do with some type of swelling of the extremities. That's really all I can say. Some of the definitions that go hand in hand with this are uh, kind of a watery uh, accumulation. So I guess that makes sense. But typically it would be swelling of the arms and legs. And Jesus healed this man. And of course that upsets the Pharisees, but this time they didn't say anything. They just kind of held their tongue, you know, during all of this. And so while they were holding their tongue at peace, he says to them, which one of you, if you have an ox in the ditch on the Sabbath day, does not go out and get your ox? Now, well, we know the answer to that. They would go out and get their ox, and Jesus is not condemning them for going out and getting their ox out of a ditch. 
because it's on the Sabbath day. Because as, as we all know, the Pharisees are very tight about this rule about not working on the Sabbath day. Seven-eighths of a mile you can go and so forth. That's it. That's it. But when, when Jesus points all this out to them, of course, his conclusion is, how much different is it for you to take care of an ox on the Sabbath day and for me to heal someone on the Sabbath day? And so then he begins to talk about some different kinds of feast. If any man makes a, a supper, a great supper, and I, well, I believe the first one he mentions is a wedding feast. And the man who is the host at the wedding feast sends out invitations to everybody. And he gets his servants to take the invitations out, and they do, and then the servants will return with the answer to the invitation. Now, in the course of this, and also with regarding the second uh, feast that he talks about, if a man just makes a supper, Jesus is saying, don't invite your neighbors, don't invite the rich, don't invite your friends, don't invite your kinfolk. Invite somebody out there that doesn't have an opportunity to be at a feast like this, you know. And so that's what he is encouraging them to do. At that time, someone speaks up and says, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on your translation. And that's when Jesus begins to kind of focus the point here to talk about excuses. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, excuses. So if you have your Bible and you're in Luke chapter 14, and you notice here it is in verse Let's start in verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things and said to him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said, A certain man made a great supper and bid many, and sent his servant at supper time to say that they were bidden and come now, for all things are ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. And the first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I, I need to go see it. And the second said, uh, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. And the third said, I have married a wife and I cannot come. So what I want to talk about is sort of an analysis or I call it an anatomy of an excuse. What, what is it that is an excuse? And what is it that these men are really saying? Because this is something by and large that we deal with too because we're put in positions sometimes where we, we offer a reason why we can't go or why we can't come, or at least uh, we ask someone to excuse us from, from having to, from doing this or doing that. And of course now this invitation is from the Lord. And this invitation really is about the receptivity of the people to the gospel of Christ. So understand this may be a little heavier weighted situation, circumstance than what we would be talking about in our everyday common life when somebody calls up and says, can you go do this? And you say, I can't go today, got a doctor appointment, whatever it is. But the focus here uh, shifts when we understand that there is a psychology of an excuse. Now, what do you mean by psychology of an excuse? I mean the common thing that identifies what it is. Because... You take a look at this, and what does the first thing say here? They all with one consent. One consent. That means they all with one agreement. Now, how do all of us agree on something that quickly? Because here are three different people. 
you know, one said, I, I bought a piece of ground. One said, I got five yoke of oxen. The other said, I, I married. But they all with one consent. You see, there's something happening there among uh, the invitation that the servant is delivering with these people. In fact, they began to make excuse. If you look that up, you'll find out right quickly that begin means to rehearse from the beginning. It means to be the first one. First one to say something, maybe. And then the rest would just chime in. Now, I don't know if you are familiar really with the term called crowd psychology. You know, this day and time, you might even, I guess, could even refer to something like a flash mob. But crowd psychology is when an event transpires that ignites a whole series of people all at once to do something, whether it be good or bad, I suppose. But most of the time when it happens, it's not good. It's not good. They all with one consent. They begin, that is, they have, this was uh, their agreement, joining in together. Now, if that's never happened to you, I'm going to tell you it's happened to me. It was a, a, a good circumstance, however. It wasn't something tragic. It wasn't something that turned out bad. See, way back yonder, yeah, way back then, I was uh, in a school of preaching. We had chapel every morning. Chapel every morning means somebody's going to speak for 30 minutes, and we're going to have some songs and prayers and things of that nature every day, every day. But rumor was from the, I was a first-year student, Rumor was from some of the second-year students that were already there that just every once in a great while, the director of the school might be agreeable to suspend chapel and go down to Coleman's Barbecue and drink coffee or something. And sure enough, the director that day said something about Coleman, and all of us said, yes, sir, <laughs> let's go. And we all went for 30 minutes. Just like that. We were all in agreement. And these folks are all in agreement. And the agreement is that they just cannot go. They're not going to go. So you, you kind of look at this whole situation and you begin to realize that in addition to the consent aspect of this, there is a comparative aspect. By comparative, it kind of carries the notion of, I, I kind of look at you and see what, what you're going to do. You look at me see what we're going to do. We're looking around to see, am I about to get any kind of support here for what, what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what you're going to do? That kind of thing. It does appear to be that that's the situation here because they all, with one consent, make their statements. So by comparing, I guess you could say, you begin to realize that that's something that triggers us sometimes, just kind of waiting on someone else if we're going to offer an excuse for, or cite something that we cite as a reason for why we do something or don't do something. And so that's kind of understanding. Now you, you, you take a look in Scripture, reading through, I guess, both Old and New Testaments, you'll find examples of this. Think back all the way into Genesis, for instance. Yeah, Genesis 3. Let's take that one. Genesis 3, verse 12. God is talking with Adam. And Adam says, The woman you gave to be with me, she did give me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, what all did that? Did Adam confess up, I did eat? Yes, but what did he do first? 
It's all right for you to talk. What did he do first? He blamed the woman. In fact, in blaming the woman, who did he really blame? Blaming God. If you hadn't given her to me, I never would have eaten of that tree. You, you know, you know it. It's only because of what you did. That's what I'm talking about here by an excuse. He's excusing his actions by blaming his wife that God graciously gave to him. And by the way, when he first saw her, he was quite happy that God gave her to him. But at this moment in time, he's just offering an excuse. But he does come in at the end of it to acknowledge, and I took it and I ate it. Let's at least credit him with that. I mean, he did a little bit better, didn't he, than Cain did a little bit later on, you know, in Genesis 4. Am I my brother's keeper? That's what he's asking God. Well, uh, is he his brother's keeper? Well, he should have been. He should have been. I've always kind of liked that little humorous uh, cartoon thing where uh, a guy's down at the zoo and he's looking at the gorilla cage and there's a, a gorilla reading from, this, from a book and it's Darwin's book on evolution. And the gorilla is saying what the caption says, am I my brother's keeper or, my, or is my keeper my brother? <laughs> well, you know, when, when Cain said this to God, he set a course here and it would not turn out well for him. But God warned him that you must, you must master this, you must obtain rule over this temptation or else sin is crouching at the door. That is... You go any further here, you're going, to be, you're going to be facing consequences you never dreamed of. And that was true. But there's the comparative nature. It's almost an opportunity again, or a chance I think he would see, to put the blame somewhere else. That seems to be a thing that we oftentimes do. Let's talk about Moses. There he is, the burning bush. Moses has been over in that part of the world now for 40 years, sees that bush, walks up to it, take off your sandals, the ground on which you walk is holy ground. And when he gets up there and God begins to tell him what I'm going to do, I'm going to send you down to Egypt, bring the children of Israel out. And what does Moses do? Anybody remember? He makes some excuses. He goes through a few of them. One of them is kind of like, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's kind of saying, and, and does a little bit later when he talks about how I, I have this stammer, you know, I can't talk well, et cetera, et cetera. And he's saying, you need to find somebody better qualified than me. There's that comparative nature again. In, in point of fact, if you think back to it, it's in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's speech, when Stephen is rehearsing the, the history of, of the, the, the Hebrew people, and he's got a, a crowd there, and in this speech, you know he's going to wind up being stoned to death, but in this speech, he gets to that part about Moses, when Moses was only 40 years old, and he went down to visit his brethren, remember? And so when he did, he saw that there was uh, an Egyptian fighting with a Hebrew, and what did Moses do? He killed the, Hebrew, he killed the, the Egyptian. But in Stephen's speech, Stephen says that what Moses thought was that his people, that would be the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, 
He thought that they would understand that by his hand, God would deliver them out of the land of Egypt. But they didn't understand that. And so they begin to mock Moses. Would you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And so Moses flees because, because this was his idea. But now, you see, he's had a failure. And that might be behind what he's saying here to some extent. When God is saying, I want you to go down to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And I don't know but what Moses is remembering 40 years earlier and I tried and it didn't work and I failed and you need to find somebody else. But it didn't work. It didn't work. Another guy comes to my mind, Naaman, the Syrian. 2 Kings 5. This man is smitten with leprosy. But he is he's in charge of uh, the army. He's a, he's a strong man for the king. But he's got leprosy. And there's a little Hebrew maiden there, evidently a captive. And she says, oh, if you were in my land, the prophet could heal you of that leprosy. Well, bingo. That's what he's going to do. He, he gets a, a letter, you know, from his king. He's going to go down there. He's going to find the prophet. And, you know, when, when the prophet comes out... And sees this guy, and Naaman doesn't like what the prophet says. Remember? Naaman says, This guy's telling me to go and wash myself seven times in the Jordan River. Listen, behold, behold, I thought. You hear that? I thought. I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the Lord his God, call upon the name of the Lord his God. And strike his hand over this place and recover the leper. That sounds pretty uh, dramatic. Make good for t- good for TV preaching, wouldn't it? Stand out there, strike your hand over the place. Oh, when we lived in Louisiana, we were had helped establish a congregation there called Walker Church of Christ. And one of the fellows that obeyed the gospel, well, actually. He had obeyed the gospel earlier in life, but he was restored there. And he was a song leader, a good song leader. And so he and I were in a conversation one day, and I said, how did you come to obey the gospel these years ago? He said, well, it's like this. We were Pentecostals, my family. And he he told me where they went and so forth. And he said, one night, I'm about 15, 16. He said, one night, we had a healing service. By the way, this is all true, in case you're wondering. This is true. And so he was there, of course, along with other people there. And this one lady responded at the invitation to be healed. And when she got down close, the fellow asked her what her ailment was. And she says, my dentures are loose. Well, what could he do? He's going to heal her. And so he got her up close And he pronounced some words and he struck his hand out like this and then he popped her on the head with his other hand and said, heal. And she backed up and nearly fell. And the guy behind was standing there, caught her. They repeated that and he popped her on the head again and said, heal. And said, are they healed? She said, no, they're just a little tighter. Well, my friend, our friend, 
our brother that was restored to Christ said, that was it for me. I could see it was just kind of a mumbo-jumbo thing. It wasn't real. Naaman is convinced that this is what the guy should do. And you see, it's because this is what Naaman thinks the guy should do, that Naaman is angry with the prophet for not doing it. Jordan River, the Abana and the Farper, better rivers than Jordan, I could go there. And if it hadn't been for the prophet's uh, servant that went out and talked to him and said, well, look, basically I'm paraphrasing this, but if he had told you to go do some great thing, would you have done it? Yeah, well, then why not? So sure enough, he was dipped seven times in the Jordan River, and he was cleansed of his leprosy. But why the excuse? See, so often it comes back to what I think God should do. That's what Naaman is really saying here. He's not doing this right. It's not the way it ought to go. Everybody knows how it ought to go. It ought to go like this. But it didn't go like that. It went like God and the prophet said that it would go. So there's kind of a comparative element here with regard to the psychology of an excuse. First they all consent with one another, then they've got this situation where he's thinking about himself and comparing to other people and so forth, and that happens. And it happens in the New Testament too. There's a passage uh, that Paul, it's Paul in 2 Thessalonians, and he's written to the Thessalonians, and this time his letter's a little bit sterner than his first letter, let's just put it that way. He's having to do more correction and things of this nature, but he winds up saying in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 7, speaking about Jesus Christ coming in his angels, uh, flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there will be somebody that day that will say, but I didn't know. You didn't tell me. It will be an excuse. There, there won't be any reason that's legitimate that we can offer on that day that's going to do away with the fact that, that Jesus has come in flaming fire to take vengeance on those that have not obeyed the gospel. But I think I recall over in Acts chapter 17, and I'm sure you do too, when Paul was at Mars Hill and he was preaching and he was trying to convince uh, these Greeks, these Gentiles, about uh, the necessity you know, at the time of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And he has given assurance in that he has raised one from the dead. That's the one that's coming back to judge. He has raised him from the dead. There's your assurance. So if you know about the resurrection of Christ, you have reason to look into the matter and see if you can't satisfy your soul's desire, really, to become a Christian. That's what Paul, in essence, is saying there. But there'll be somebody that will say, but I, I didn't know. Now, we're not talking about somebody that was an infant. We're not talking about somebody that didn't have the mental capability of understanding. Okay, I'm not talking about that. Those people are all right. We're talking about a judgment against people that should have known because they were without excuse. So an excuse, the psychology of an excuse carries with it this idea of consent, ready agreement with somebody else. Because here's, sometimes you've heard the expression, uh, the devil is in the details. You ever heard that? 
Meaning, if you don't look close, you'll miss really what's happening here. Well, here's the thing about excuses. If I will excuse you, you'll excuse me. But when the Lord comes, we won't have any excuses. There's also the control factor. Can't you see that transpiring in all of this? That I, I can't let somebody else control me. I don't need to submit to someone else here. The fellow has sent us an invitation. Great big feast. We're supposed to come. Everything's been prepared. It's ready now. Let me just tell you. You don't prepare everything and then send out an invitation. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm sure most of you don't. If you're making a big to-do, a feast, if it's, I don't know, Thanksgiving time, Christmas time, you know, and you're going to invite people to come, they know about it before Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. And that would have been the case with them. You, you, you delve into a little bit of, of what was considered uh, common courtesy among particularly the Arabs, but also in the Middle East. You always sent two invitations. You sent one to put them on notice. You sent the second one when everything was ready. They could have said some things on the first invitation, but they didn't. Now everything's ready. It's prepared. And what's happening here? Well, what's happening here is the fellow says, I bought a piece of ground and I must, I must, I must go and see it. I think he is, he is urging the necessity of the moment here for himself. I must go and see it. Pray thee, have me excused. Could have said this earlier, you know, but didn't. And the second fellow says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go and prove them. I needs, go, needs to go and prove them. Pray that you have me excused. And I'm sitting here thinking. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a cattleman, you know. Uh, I've never really bought a lot of property, but before I bought a house, I looked at it. You know what I'm saying? Before this guy bought the piece of land, you mean he bought it, never had seen it? What about the yoke of oxen, five yoke of oxen? It's time to go and prove them now. I bought them. I better go see what I've got. Don't, don't you think I need to do that? I, I pray thee have me excused. You just look at that and you, you're looking right through it and you're, you're understanding it for what it is. Fellow's not going to come. Doesn't want to come. That's something else that for him is more interesting to do, more needful to do. And so just have me excused. I pray have me excused. And then the third guy. I married a wife and I can't come. <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that exactly. Uh, there could be some circumstances, couldn't there, where you married a wife and you really cannot come? Yeah, I don't know. Is she sick? Is she hurt? Is there some kind of unfolding catastrophe happening there? You know, what's the situation? What about the guy with the oxen? Is, is somebody trying to rob him? Uh, some crooks have come up there, going to steal his oxen. He's heard about it. He needs to go see about it. See, those are, 
Because we're talking about really here property. We're talking about business, business ventures. And the third guy, we're talking about family relationships, and there can always be something with regard to any of those that make it a legitimate reason rather than an excuse. When you are looking at defining the difference between a reason and an excuse, it's going to come down to intent and motivation. What's my real intent? What's the real motivating factor here that says I can't, I can't keep this invitation? And we can't look at these hearts of these people and say, well, they didn't really have a genuine intent about keeping the feast at all. But the Lord can. And the Lord's the one making the application here. And at the end of this, the Lord is going to say, eventually here in this chapter, he's going to say that none of those that were bidden to come to the feast and did not come will eat at my table. So the Lord made a decision, a judgment there. Not you, not me. The psychology of an excuse is about consent and control, and it's about comparing, comparing with one another so that we can make sure that we get along with uh, our decision to not go. But then there's the progress of excuses, the progression. Things get tightened up. It becomes more of a bold situation after all. You think about those three guys and what they have said. And in the first place, you could hear the same kind of excuses or considering the intent and the motivation, not an excuse, but a legitimate reason. And it's kind of trying to understand what's in between that helps you to know that. Uh, Someone's going to come one day and say to you, if they haven't already, like they did to me, you're running a business, takes me 24-7. I just don't have time to get involved with anything right now. You can call me back in about a few years once everything calms down. And that can be sincere. It can be legitimate for a period of time. But if the intent and the motivation is to just not be involved, it'll be true all the time. It'll be true all the time. Or you consider this third person, the one that said uh, about his family relationships, I've married a wife and I can't come. And I've already mentioned there could be some legitimate reasons maybe that, that he couldn't. But he didn't tell us what they were, you see. The only reason is I'm married. And it's She's the reason I can't come. So he doesn't really offer anything. But in point of fact, people are sometimes offering uh, explanations. Let me just say it that way. Whether it turns out to be an excuse or a legitimate reason, uh, you get to know later maybe. But they're offering explanations that relate to family. I can remember hearing one in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Family had mixed faith parents. And children didn't know what to do when they were reaching the age of accountability and making decisions. But since one was not Christian, but Jewish, and the other was not Christian, but something else, and what I've been hearing is that I'm supposed to honor my mother and my father, so if I become a Christian, I'll be dishonoring both. Now, you look at that, is that an excuse? 
Or is it a reason? It could be this. Depending on the age of the person, it could be this is someone who needs to be taught more, to learn more, to become uh, engrafted in the Word of God more, to have a faith that's not shaken, to understand. Because, you know, at the end of this, Jesus has a comment to make about those who love father and mother more than me. But it's a circumstance like that where you see how there can be a progression, I guess we would say in tone, or in, in how vociferously they refuse to come. And by the way, the third guy, he never says, I pray thee have me excused. He's not going. His answer, just cut it short, I'm not going. And that's all there is to it. You see, if you're the guy that's received the second invitation to come, and this is what you're saying to the master now, or the man that's offering to host this supper, it's an insult. It could have said something earlier, for one thing. With the progression of excuses, there's always a rationale that you learn more about as it progresses, and particularly if the tone becomes more vociferous, if it becomes more strident, if it becomes something like that, it, it ceases to be a request, and it turns into a demand out of rudeness. And you just kind of have that progression from rationale to request to rude. And it's all in, unfolds right there, Luke 14. See, it has become a presumption that I'm the one in control, rather than an excuse to be offered to someone that should be in control. And so presumption is insulting. Now, you read through this, and it's obvious to me, it seems obvious to me, that Jesus from the get-go, when he went into, what time's it getting to be here? When's the buzzer gonna ring? Five more minutes, okay. It seems obvious that this is intended for understanding generally for, for Israel. God has prepared a feast for you. And the ones that reject it out of hand and don't come, they are the leaders of Israel. You're talking about the Pharisees and those people that, uh, the chief priests and so on and so on. But you know what happens when the servant comes back and he tells his uh, master that no, these people are not coming. What does the master do? He says, go out into the city and go out into the lanes and you, you compel them to come in. In town. In other words, where you are, you go out now, find these people and find the poor and the maimed and the halt and the lame. Why? Why find them? Doesn't that fit in with what he said earlier in this same chapter about when you make a feast, don't invite your neighbor, your friend, you can folk, but invite those who are poor, maimed, halt, lame. This would be in the Jewish system of things, the folks in Israel that are regarded as being of a lesser class by the high and mighty nobles. But they come. Doesn't matter if they're a publican or not. Jesus has come to save people. And then secondly, or thirdly, he sends his servant back out because there's still room in the house, so he sends him back out, go out of the city, 
go out into the hedges and the byways and the highways and compel them to come in. And so these people are not Jews at all. They're Gentiles. His intent here is to get this kind of message over into the hearts of the people. And he's sitting in the house of a, one of the chief of the Pharisees to do it. And they're listening. They're listening. Because there is also the peril of an excuse. And the peril, as it plays out here, is what Jesus says in verse 23. None of those men who were bidden shall taste my supper. They're out. It's kind of like Ephesians 1, isn't it? Verse 3. All spiritual blessings are in, in who? Well, they're all in Christ Jesus. That's where all of the spiritual blessings are. And if you're outside of Christ, you're outside of the blessing. And further, there are some aspects about the reason versus, I guess you'd say, again, the motivation or the intent. Because there can be genuine reasons why you wouldn't go to a supper or a feast or to church. It might be a situation where somebody's going to the hospital. It might be somebody is home in bed, can't really do anything. It might be that there are storms. It might be that you've got an ox in the ditch that you've got to attend to or something disastrous is going to happen. It might even be that we've had a situation that shuts everybody in their houses for months and months, like COVID did. And I don't think the finality of whether how much of that was actually necessary or not has really been decided yet. But the point of it is, there could be a circumstance that makes not having been at the feast, not having accomplished a particular job you're asked to do, and instead you offered what would be an excuse, except for this reason. There can be a reason. But here's one of the perils of excuses, that what is a reason can soon become an excuse. I know of a congregation in another state which will stop doing their broadcast streaming because their people are not coming back to church. I suppose that's the buzzer. Okay. I guess we need to kind of wrap it up. The psychology of an excuse carries you through the consent and the comparative aspect and the controlling factor. And to understand the progression of an excuse, you have to see how the situation is heightened vociferously and boldly on the part of those that are making their excuses and the reason for why they do. And the peril of an excuse is that you will be outside of Christ if you're understanding this in the sense I think the Lord's intending here. This is a, a feast to invite everybody to. But you don't want everybody. So you don't want to come. But I'm going to take the, blame, uh, the lame and the blind and the halt and the maimed and I'm going to take the Gentiles and I'm going to bring them in and they're going to receive a blessing you could have had. That's one of the perils of excuses. Let's leave it at that since time is up and maybe at the invitation have something to say with connection with this particular set of scripture. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attention.
and for speaking up every once in a while and helping the preacher out. Thanks.